Our text on this second Sunday in Lent, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That's Luke's summary of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus was led by the Spirit. We talked about that last week. And he was teaching. Galilee is where Jesus will gather disciples and from them select his apostles. And Luke says he drew quick attention, and it was his teaching that generated that response. He taught in their synagogues. That was his regular habit. We don't know a lot about where synagogues come from, how they developed. It's likely they arose during the the Babylonian captivity when the temple could no longer be the focus for worship. So that synagogues served as locales for teaching and prayer among the dispersed Jewish people. And each week the Hebrew Bible was read. And someone from the community after the reading of the Bible would then address the people about the text. Sound familiar? (laughs) Jesus did that. This one who resisted the devil, who's... Evidently doing some miracles in Galilee, we learn from later in this text, but the key is he's moving among the people, bringing his message out of the scriptures. It was his teaching that became the central component in Luke's mind. And so this wave of popularity is sweeping Jesus. That's common between the Gospels that Jesus is popular and his early ministry in particular But we quickly see that that initial reaction is not the ultimate one. And so Luke chooses to move us into a synagogue scene. It's the synagogue in Nazareth. And it is the paradigmatic moment for Luke because what we get in verses 16 and following is God's plan and Jesus' role in it. And then come the reactions. And we've been in Luke now for several weeks, and maybe you remember what Simeon said. Simeon, who held the baby Jesus in the temple in in Luke chapter 2, verses 34-35, Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That is what happens when you encounter Jesus. And that's just what happens in the Nazarene synagogue. And we know it's coming. Jesus is a sign that is opposed, Simeon says, within Israel. And so in Luke 
as Luke presents it, we don't even get 10 verses into the beginning of Jesus' public ministry when Luke has him already being rejected. Which is, of course, Luke's choice in how to relate all this because it would have been very easy to allow for at least a few paragraphs about Jesus' popular ministry in Galilee. I mean, things were going so well. He was healing and he was teaching and people loved him. And it's the Galilean springtime, it's called sometimes in the literature about the Gospels. Why not focus on that? Why not dwell on the early miracles and the teaching that swept Jesus up in this popular wave? I mean, if you're really trying to sell Jesus to your reader, isn't that important? Evidently not as important. Evidently that's not where Luke needs to dwell. Luke knows it's rejection that will ultimately be the reality of Jesus' life. It's the cross that ultimately dominates the gospel narrative as the goal of Jesus' life and ministry. And of course, there's some people who follow Jesus all through it, and there are the disciples, there are others. He's very popular sometimes and at moments in the Gospels, but ultimately it's rejection that characterizes Jesus' earthly ministry. So here's my question this morning. Why is he rejected? That's our focus this morning. There, there could be two sermons from this passage. This sort of could be two different sermons. The first sermon, which I'm not preaching, listen to me, not preach it, would be to unpack the significance of verses 17 to 21 of this text. We could spend the whole time there. Jesus goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day in Nazareth, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, and then he reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a full sermon right there, those verses. We could discuss how the reading that Jesus selected, as Luke now summarizes that, it's likely Jesus read a larger portion of scripture than just those couple of sentences, but this is Luke's distillation of the key points that here include Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, verse 6. So it's Isaiah. There's a couple lines left out. One of which is the, set, is the final half of the last line. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. You can look it up later. Which has to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in it. But then ends with something else. It's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus leaves that part off. So he's got their attention. And then he sits 
which isn't to say he's done, because in the synagogue context, the preacher sat to preach. This is the beginning of the sermon, and he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning that the consolation of Israel promised long before by Isaiah has found its ultimate expression in Jesus and his message. And that while the day of vengeance of our God would come, the part Jesus didn't read, that wasn't being fulfilled on this day. What was being fulfilled now was the year, the season of the Lord's favor. The question of this text becomes, who receives the Lord's favor? All of that's the sermon I'm not preaching. (laughs) But it is the sermon that Jesus preached because Jesus would have unpacked all that. You see how in verse 21, Luke says, and he began to say to them. Luke puts it that way because after saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus would have explained it there would have followed an exposition of Isaiah and of these four classes of people who benefit from his ministry, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed, the people to whom Christ came, the people whom Christ saves. Luke doesn't record that sermon. Kind of wish he had. The people evidently liked it a lot. That's why verse 22 then says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words, literally words of grace, that were coming from his mouth. You see, that's not in response just to that one sentence. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the response to Jesus' sermon, which we don't have written down here in Luke. And then they said, Is not this Joseph's son. Which, if you stop to think about it, is incredibly hard to interpret without hearing the tone with which it was said. Right? What do they mean? Was it a sudden cynical turn? Isn't this Joseph's son? Maybe. Lots of commentators go that route. Parallel texts in the other synoptics suggest there could have been a negative implication of that question. So it's tricky, but as I read Luke, I'm not convinced that's exactly what was meant. Because I think it's more natural here to read it as an extension of their speaking well and marveling in verse 22, so that it's something like, isn't this Joseph's son? From our town? Meaning something like, Jesus is our man. This is our hometown hero. They're excited. What Jesus said sounds pretty good. There was power in the words he spoke. He just pronounced these words of great power and liberty and healing. And then a couple other things to mention. That when someone is identified as the son of his father in the Old Testament, it's never intended to diminish that individual's status. And I think it's significant that Old Testament prophets are regularly introduced as the son of their fathers. 
So I'm not necessarily seeing here that there's hostility yet when they say, is not this Joseph's son? I think maybe they're excited that he's one of them. Because who are they? Well, they're residents of Nazareth. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, Matthew connects the Hebrew word Natser, the, the word for branch, the word that's used of the messianic branch of Isaiah chapter 11 that talks about the shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse in Isaiah chapter 11. He connects that word with the name Nazareth. In other words, that Nazareth is probably an intentionally messianic name for this town, referring to that shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse in Isaiah chapter 11. And it's thought that perhaps members of the house of David from Babylon or the area around Damascus had resettled the area in late Hellenistic times and they gave it this consciously messianic name. So then here's Jesus' Davidic lineage already being emphasized by specifically referring to Joseph, right? The descendant of David is not this Joseph's son. So that I'm suggesting the point here could be these folks think their days come. Nazareth may have been impoverished and insignificant at this point, but they hadn't forgotten their messianic hopes of restoration. And now here's Jesus, Joseph's son, saying such words of grace. He's known all over Galilee for his teaching. The one from our little town. It's their day because Jesus is going to take care of his hometown first. Right? If these messianic promises are fulfilled in the spirit-anointed Jesus, then he's, that's got to bode well for them in Nazareth. I mean, he's done some great stuff elsewhere in Capernaum and, and so on. It's our turn. That's what I think is going on. And I think that mostly because of how Jesus responds now. So, verse 23. And he said to them, see, this is Jesus responding to what they've just said. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. You see, I think that's the point. This is your hometown, Jesus. Do great things for us. Bring that healing and liberty and deliverance you just talked about to us. Bring us what we want. Lift us from our lowly... We're your people. Lift us from our lowly estate here in Nazareth. We're yours. We're your own town. And I think Jesus, in the way that only Jesus could do, is able to discern their hearts and is essentially saying, your hearts aren't right. Thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. They're not stopping to consider something else that Simeon had talked about in terms of what God's purposes might be. 
They want Jesus to themselves. And so when they come to see in the rest of this text more fully exactly what the nature of Jesus' mission is, he's no longer going to be acceptable to them. Because what seemed like a positive reaction at first wasn't really very deep. This is not the first time we see this pattern in the Gospels. And Jesus knows that. So that's where we are now in verse 24, if you're there still in the text. And Jesus said, truly, amen, literally. Jesus has this habit, right, of front-loading what he has to say with the word amen. It's a claim of authority. Along the lines of, thus says the Lord, right? Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Don't miss that Jesus here classifies himself as a prophet. You could say Jesus is the prophet. I'm thinking of passages like Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses talks like this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. There's other texts in the Old Testament that foreshadow this. Jesus is the prophet who's been anticipated. Prophets speak for the Lord. Truly, I say to you, when you speak for the Lord as a prophet, you can bet it's going to include exhortations and warnings that won't be well received by everyone including those you're closest to, those in your hometown. I mean, let's not forget the intimate relationship Jesus would have had with many people in that synagogue that morning. They knew him. But they didn't understand the way in which Jesus was a prophet on a divine mission. And he does something now remarkable here. He chooses two examples of Old Testament prophets and he uses their stories to bring out his own prophetic warning and ministry. No prophet is acceptable in his own hometown, Jesus says, and he's about to prove the point. So verse 25, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So who and what and why is Jesus talking about this? Would you turn to 1 Kings 17? It's page 170 in the smaller print. Uh, Bibles on the table there or page 330 in the bigger print versions 170 or 330 1 Kings 17 because you know I I love doing this where we go back in and look at the Old Testament context the narrative that's behind this and it doesn't get much better than these two stories so we're in 1 Kings 17 and we're looking at verse 8 and following This is not a good time. Ahab is reigning over Israel. The land is under divine judgment because he'd put up altars to Baal, false god. So the Lord brought up this drought and severe famine on the land for three years. And Elijah tells Ahab this is going to happen. So now we're reading here in verse 8, 1 Kings 17. Then the word of the Lord 
came to him, Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath. And that's the place Jesus mentions, right? Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. The key is that Sidon is not Israel. These are enemies of the people of God. These are not people who love the God of the Bible or worship Him, though at this point Israel isn't doing that either. That's part of the point. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, tells His prophet to go to the widow in Zarephath. And that just seems wrong. Widows are the lowest class of all. They have no political influence whatsoever. This is a pagan land where they worship explicitly a false god. What's God doing? Well, in short, he's saving her. So verse 10 of 1 Kings 17, So Elijah arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. Read, she's not wealthy. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her again and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. It's not rained in years. This woman's not been eating much. Her son hasn't been eating. They're dying. And Elijah says, Bring me bread. Right. So she responds, verse 12, And she said, as the Lord your God lives, now she knows that his God is not her God. Notice that. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I mean, this is dire. So what's going on? Well, Elijah is going to call her to exercise faith. Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Huh. I mean, they're about to die. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. See how he's clarified for her who he's talking about? The jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now that's not an easy request. Every bit of food they have, they need. Elijah says, give some to me first and God will provide for you. What's this widow going to do? And so this widow from Sidon has to trust Elijah's God. She has to have faith. You know what faith looks like. It looks like obedience. So that's what faith is, doing what God says to do. So verse 15, and she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent and neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This woman came to believe in the God of Israel, this poor woman in a foreign country that worships a false god, and Yahweh knows her, and Yahweh loves her, and things aren't all great forever. After there, the story goes on. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. 
and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. In other words, he died. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. So here's this Gentile widow taking in Elijah, the prophet of Israel, in her home. right? And Elijah laid him on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? It's okay to ask God questions like that. It's an honest inquiry there. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. What a moment. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Watch this. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. There it is. You're the prophet. (laughs) The word you speak is true. This woman worships the God of the Bible. The kingdom has just broken into this woman and her family who are otherwise very far from God in Zarephath, in Sidon. Why did Jesus rehearse this story in the synagogue in Nazareth? Because Jesus is like Elijah. He's the prophet now. And there, all like apostate Israel was. That's the parallel. And God says to Elijah, you go to the aid of this Gentile woman in Zarephath of Sidon. Get it? who comes to trust that the word of the Lord in the prophet's mouth is true. Jesus' mission isn't to bring them in Nazareth special treatment. He's come to free the captives and heal the blind and deliver the oppressed, and these those people are not limited to any one place. Remember Simeon's words, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. I think you could say that the points that here's this pagan widow in Sidon who demonstrates faith. And you in the Nazarene synagogue? You're further from God than she was. She had faith that God delivered her. Jesus isn't the Messiah for a few people who think they're special, even if they're the people of God. Jesus is the Messiah for all people, and what's required to be delivered by him is faith. Okay, so go back to Luke chapter 4 now, verse 27. Now don't leave Kings very much, because we're going elsewhere in Kings. Luke 4, verse 27, Jesus isn't done with them yet. And there are many, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Again, he's paralleling himself to the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. This is the only time that Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha is mentioned in the New Testament. This is it. So we might as well look at it. We're in 2 Kings now. 2 Kings chapter 5, page 177 in the small print page 343 in the big print. 
when else are you going to go to church and read 2 Kings 5? Here we go. You should, but it's good. Jesus is identifying here with Elisha. So let's look at it. 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. This guy's powerful. Syria's very mighty. They're no friends of Israel. And you note that the Lord is in control even of that. Very interesting point. Keep going. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, leprosy is this terrible skin disease in which the skin turns puffy, white, you lose your nerve endings, the skin basically is falling off because you can't control uh, how, what's happening to it anymore. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She, that is this girl, said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Verse 4, so Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So this girl in the Lord's providence has started this international level diplomacy here between enemy nations. So he went, taking with him, get this, 10 talents of silver. That's 750 pounds of silver. And 6,000 pieces of gold. That's 150 pounds of gold and ten changes of clothing, and he brought the letter. So you got to picture this entourage, right? He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. What? <laughs> That's ridiculous. In fact, it seems like a trap. Seems like a trap. Verse 7, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So you see where the king's at in terms of this. This doesn't seem good to him. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king. This wasn't the right response. He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And I guess if you're the king, you're somewhat relieved here, right? Because someone else is handling this one. So verse (laughs) 9. So Naaman came. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and he stands at the door of Elisha's house. Now watch this. This is amazing. This is the commander of the army of the king of Syria with literally millions of dollars in tow. And Elisha can't really be bothered. It says he sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. 
and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Which now has Naaman really upset, right? But it's important because the point isn't that the prophet himself is doing anything to heal Naaman. The point is God will heal Naaman. Naaman has to obey him. Verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. God didn't need to do it that way. Naaman goes on, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in his rage. This guy's not used to taking orders. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? Those are brave servants. (laughs) Do what the prophet said. Wash yourself. Yes, it's a bit humiliating. Seven times over in the river, you're a leper. Not an easy thing to do as the commander of the Syrian army. Do it. Why? Because that's how God set it up for you to do. And sometimes it requires that we humble ourselves to obey God. And it requires that to believe Jesus and publicly follow him, doesn't it? A lot of people aren't willing to do that. Naaman did it. He did obey. So verse 14 says, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. See, there's the key phrase that parallels the response of the widow in in, uh, 1 Kings 17 came to trust in the word of the Lord through the man. According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. That's faith on display. He did it according to the word of the man of God. And it's a very important thing that it says he was clean, not just healed, clean. That's clean and unclean language. That's Leviticus and so on. This is Naaman the Syrian who's able to be cleansed before God. This is a picture of salvation. This is a picture of faith for the forgiveness and cleansing of sin. This story of the cleansing of a Gentile leper. Now you're back in Nazareth. What's the point? Jesus says it. There were many lepers in Israel. None of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. He's the one who had faith. The leader of the enemies of Israel. It wasn't easy. It didn't come right away. He did it. Jesus points that out, and that does it. They're mad now. God's saving the wrong people. God's saving the wrong people. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue are filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They want to kill him. But it's not his time yet. And so passing through their midst, Luke says, 
he went away. They rejected Jesus. They were not interested in what God was doing for the world. They assumed that their Messiah must serve their needs and do so first. They expected to be favored. Jesus isn't about that. He's bringing the deliverance and rescue and healing that Isaiah promised. Oh, he is. And it's for everyone. And it's available by faith because everyone's in the same place. In the eyes of God, we're all as needy as the widow in Zarephath. And our sin is as horrible as Naaman's leprosy. And we need to humble ourselves and be cleansed. Don't reject Jesus because you think you're above all that. Don't be like the people in Nazareth. They stood upon their ideas of their rights and insisted on preferential treatment. And the gospel Jesus proclaims leaves no room for privilege. We can't control Jesus and have him perform for us. We have to know that we're needy like the widow came to know. And we have to be willing to humble ourselves like Naaman was willing to do. We can't, we can't keep Jesus to ourselves. Jesus won't do that. The people at Nazareth should have said, how can we spread this good news that the Messiah has come to proclaim liberty and heal and deliver? How can we help and serve for others to know that? That's not what they said. It was all, where's our miracle? Where's our deliverance? What about us? What about me? Because if and when we do begin focusing on ourselves rather than on God's larger purposes, we can expect to be reminded of the truth that God shows no partiality, that his grace is surprising, and that in fact it's those who appear to be the least entitled to taste the benefits of the year of the Lord's favor who seem to be the most likely to do so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.